KMTT. You are listening to the Erev Shabbat program with your host, Jonathan Snowbell. Erev Shabbat Kodesh, Parashat Tazria, Shabbat Parashat HaChodesh. And the Erev Shabbat program is Lilui Nishmat, Shoma Yosef ben Chaim Shmuel. Parashat Tazria, we are dealing with, in the beginning of the parsha, we deal with Tumat Yoledet, an interesting issue to deal with unto itself. However, the bulk of the parsha and the beginning of next week's parsha deal with Tumat Tzara'at. It is common to discuss Tumat Sarat, to translate into English leprosy. Um, many modern day uh, rabbis' commentaries will remind us that leprosy is a medical disease that is treatable through, or dealt with, not necessarily treatable, through different medical means. However, Tzara'at is though a physical situation, if you can call it that, is not a medical disease. And it is not a medical disease for two reasons. One is that it appears in our clothing and in our house as well, which don't happen in medical diseases. Uh, human beings get leprosy, their clothing and their houses do not get leprosy. <coughs> Additionally, the Torah is discusses the possibility of medicine. Beginning of Parshat Mishpatim, we talk about a person who is hurt, who is injured, and we, the pasuk ends: The person who injures his fellow man is obligated to pay, amongst other payments, he's obligated to pay for the doctor's bill, for the hospital bill. In other words, there is a concept of medicine in the Torah. The Torah believes that one is permitted, or according to others, one is obligated to take uh, his medical situation into his own hands and, and go to a doctor and make sure everything is okay. Here, we do not have the intervention of doctors. The person in charge here is a Kohen. A Kohen is a spiritual advisor, if we may say that, to determine whether this person is not ill or okay, but rather Tameh or Tahor, pure or impure. Again, terms that don't come from the world, word, world of medicine, but come from the world of spirituality. Impure and pure are spiritual labels and not medical labels. Again, we can talk about other reasons why uh, tzarat is not a medical issue. Uh, in halacha we talk about, and this is mentioned in Rashi in the, in the Psukim in this week's parsha. we talk about the fact that a chatan and shivat yamei the Kohen conveniently ignores visiting the Chatan to see if he is has a negatarat or not, 
and only evaluates him after after the Shavar Brachot are over. And again, this is something that a halacha can allow us to do if we are dealing with a spiritual ailment, not if we are dealing with a medical ailment. We, no one would ever say, oh, you're a chatan, and during the, the first week of marriage, don't go to the doctor to see if you're sick. Wait until the Shavar Brachot are over. Well, depends on the severity of the illness, certainly. We wouldn't delay uh, a chatan from going to see a doctor if you really needed to see a doctor. Out of all of this, we see a picture of a spiritual ailment or a physical manifestation of a spiritual lacking that God gives us and we have to act appropriately. And in that case, after determining that we're not talking about a medical ailment, but a spiritual ailment. Here, then, we already have to ask ourselves, well, what is the spiritual ailment coming for? What is its purpose? And there aren't clear answers to that in the Torah. The Torah talks about what are the results of the spiritual ailment. So if we talk about the three types of tzarat, I'm purposely not translating the word sarat into English because I don't have an appropriate English term because this is a unique, as we mentioned earlier, saying leprosy would be inappropriate. We're using the Hebrew term sarat, which describes this ailment, which is a physical ailment, but the cause is not a medical one and the ramifications are not medical. We don't read about someone having sarat and therefore being sick or being uh, or being at risk for their life, we have to find out what the Torah demands of them to do, and try to figure out what is this ailment that God has brought upon this person trying to tell them. As we said, the there are three types of tzarat. The tzarat can be in the body of the human being. The tzarat can be in the clothing of the human being. And the tzara'at can be in the house of the human being. In the case that the human being has tzara'at, or even a... then the human being is out, is sent outside of his place of dwelling, outside of the city. He's not allowed to have relations with his wife. This person is left alone. He's not allowed to let anybody come near him. He shouts out, if anybody comes near him, Tame, Tame, I am impure. And this is, in, on, on that level, the, one of the most, the most severe form of impurity because while other forms of impurity might banish one from being in the area of the Be- certain areas of the Beit HaMikdash or all areas of the Beit HaMikdash, this tzarat not only pushes us out of holy places, it pushes us out of places of regular human living, out of the city. N- not necessarily Jerusalem, any city. A person who has tzarat has to be out of the city. As we read in the stories of Tanakh, when the Aramean army put a siege on Shomron, the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel, the four people who determined that the, the army left were four Mitzvah who weren't living amongst the people in the city. 
they were on the outside of the city, and they were able to determine that the army left and disappeared and ran away. The Tzarat in the Begid, in the worst-case scenario, demands of the owner of the Begid to destroy the Begid, the, the clothing entirely, to burn it. In the last-case scenario, in the final-case scenario, in the worst-case scenario. And in the case of a house, the in the worst-case scenario, the person is obligated to destroy his house. Now, when the Tarat in these three manifestations is discussed, we ask ourselves, well, what is the worst type of Tarat? What is the most aggressive message that God could send us through Tarat? And what is the least aggressive, perhaps a, a light warning? The classic interpretation is that whatever is closer to me physically is a more severe warning, a more severe message. That being, my house is my environment, and and, and it's harat in my house, is the message that something in my environment perhaps is not good. Tzarat in my beged, my beged, my clothing, sits on my body. It's not part of my body, but it sits right on my body. And therefore, it is a closer message. Something that is maybe closer, more severe, is, more, uh, is, is, is in question, is problematic. And finally, Tzarat in my body, an ailment that is afflicting my body, is the most severe form of tarat, it banishes me from society, as we said, and is, and is the harshest message that something is wrong with me, myself. However, there is potentially a different approach to viewing the severity of tarat. If I were to ask any homeowner who has paid for his house, or is in the middle of paying for his house, but has spent all of his life savings on his house and has X number of years left of his mortgage, what would you prefer? Would you prefer to get the most extreme form of tzarat in your body, which may keep you out of society for three weeks, you wouldn't be able to go to work for three weeks, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, you wouldn't be able to function normally as a human being, you wouldn't, you wouldn't see your family, at least not within your house, or have your house destroyed. I think those of us who are homeowners would not hesitate for a moment, and they would, without batting an eyelash, say, whatever ailment it is, give it to me for two weeks, three weeks, a month, and leave my house alone. My house is my, my investment, my, all my life saving has gone into my house, and losing my house, there couldn't be a worse punishment than that. 
Now let's look into the clothing as a middle ground, because then perhaps the house is the worst, followed by the individual, and then the the clothing. If I talk about losing an individual piece of clothing, a pair of pants, a shirt, a dress, none of that seems certainly not worse than not worse than having an ailment in my body and not worse than losing my house. However, if we look into clothing in biblical times, we will see that clothing was not something that they had in plenty as we do today. Certainly poor people, we could talk about them having one garment of clothing for the daytime and one garment of clothing for the nighttime to the extent that if I took collateral from a poor person who I gave a loan during the day, during the day he was wearing his daytime clothing and he gave me his nighttime garments as his collateral, I'm obliged to return the nighttime clothing by the night so he'll have what to wear at night. Here we're talking about a situation where clothing is not in abundance, one has perhaps two or three articles of clothing, and that's what there is to wear. And now, and this of course will describe some sort of expense when it comes to clothing. And therefore, the idea of losing this piece of garment and the need to burn it is suddenly not such an easy idea. And it is now the equivalent, and perhaps the female listeners amongst us will take this more harshly, the equivalent of burning half of my wardrobe, more than half of my wardrobe. And now if I ask someone what's worse, to be out of the, outside of uh, society for a week or two or to lose half or more of my wardrobe, what is worse? Here we'll already have different answers. The message of all of this, first of all, two perspectives of looking at Sarat. How do we look at Sarat? But perhaps the deeper message is, where can I go wrong more? Can I go wrong more in spiritual sins or misdirections that affect myself individually? That would be tarat in my body. Tarat, which already reflects my attitude towards other people. My clothing is something that is external to me and other people see. My actions, perhaps, that other people see. Or my household. My householder is already something that talks about my family life, how other people perceive my family life. We have, very, we have many circles in which our spiritual life exists. And it's hard to determine which of those circles is the most crucial. And this expresses itself in the different severities, in the different ways that we can view tzarat. Is tzarat haguf, the tzarat in the body, the most severe, and those circles moving away from me, least, less severe, or perhaps the other way around. 
those circles that are further away from me I have, have a greater impact on others, and those are the more severe types of tarat. And the tarat that affects me, the, my spirituality that only affects me, that's the least severe, and that's the easiest type of tarat. At this point in the program, we will turn to Rav Tavori. This week is the yard site of Mayor Don Plutsky, the famous author of the Klichem Dan Adesvayim. Rameyer Dan was born in Poland, in a city called Kutna, at approximately in the year 1866 or 1867, and he was Nifter in 1928 on the beginning of Nisan. The birth of his, uh, his birth was into a Hasidish family, his grandfather and his father were Rabbanim, and he was a sickly child. At a certain point, when he was a child, they uh, were not convinced that he would survive. They davened for him. When he recovered, they saw in him potential for greatness in Torah, and legend has it that his grandfather came to him when Rameer Dan was yet a young boy, and actually was mashbiahim made him take a shvua that he would go up to be a Tamid Chacham and write down his chidushim. According to the story, the grandfather died on that day that he was mashbiah, Remeir Dan. He learned in the yeshivas, in the Polish type of yeshivas at that time, he went to a city called Kalish, where he learned in the yeshiva of the famous author of the Nefesh Chaya. From there... As he grew up, he went to learn by the Avni Nezer. The Avni Nezer, the Yisachachavar, the author of the Egletal, the, the uh, Avni Nezer, was known as the son-in-law of the Rav of Kutsk, the Rebbe of Kutsk. He was known to have a, a specific type of a, a derech, the Sachachavar derech, which uh, we would call some sort of a Polish uh, derech in learning. Remer Dan was uh, obviously well-known as a young Tamid Chacham, and he was very sought after in Shiduchim. He was married young, as is the custom in those days. He got married approximately the age of 15. At the age of 25, he became a Rav of a small town, and he was a, a free from many responsibilities, as it was a small town. And in that town, he began to write Chidushim, as we see in his Chidushim, a lot of what he has written was based on correspondence that he wrote with Gedolim all over the world. A very interesting type of Lamdash Pilpul that he carried on with many, many people. When he was, uh, as his fame spread, he was approached by other communities. One community in particular that approached him promised him that his financial situation would increase tremendously if he would move to that community. The um, town in which he lived was apparently rather financially scrapped and didn't do very well, and he himself, in his personal life, was not managing that well. He had certain personal tragedies as well. But this community offered him a munificent salary and said that his financial situation would be greatly improved. He turned it down, and he quoted the Mishnah in Pirkei Avos that said, if people would give me 
a tremendous fortune, I would not leave a Makam Torah to go to a place where, which is not a Makam Torah. But it was very obvious that he thought highly of the community in which he stay, was. But why was he automatically so convinced that the other town was not a Makam Torah? His response was, if they came to me and suggested talking about money, and that was what they offered me, that was the way they tried to convince me to come to their community, that's a sign that it's not a Makam Torah. So he stayed in his town, but in the year Tafresh Ayin Beis, he went to Eretz Yisrael for a trip, and he at that time he met Gedolim Eretz Yisrael and spoke and learning to them, and that trip made a big impression both upon him and the people whom he met. When he came back to Poland in Tafresh Ayin Hay, he became the Rav of Ostrov. Apparently, he felt that Ostrov was uh, Makam Taira. The other cities that had offered him uh, to positions he had turned down because he felt they weren't really a Makam Taira. I guess if he took the job in Ostrov, he was somehow convinced that that was more of a Makam Taira. In Tafresh Pebeis, we know that he was very active in communal organizations. He became one of the leaders of the Aguda. In fact, he became the head of the Aguda Sarabanim. That was a very prestigious position to take at that time with all the Rabbanim in, in Poland. He was chosen to be the Yoshev Rosh of the Aguda, the chairman of the Aguda Sarabanim. One of the interesting biographical notes of Meridan is that he went to a, he went on a trip, presumably to raise money for his yeshivas, for his uh, the people in Poland, and he went on a trip to England and to the United States. The uh, history of the trip to the United States is documented in books about the history of the United States in the early part of the 20th century. My father-in-law, Rabbi David Teigman, used to tell me how he remembered going with his father, who was a Gerachasid, they went to the port to greet Rabbi Meir Dan when he arrived in America and how they took him to the hotel in America and how they made sure he had kosher food. And the trip to America of Rabbi Meir Dan made a, a very big impression upon my father-in-law and he described it many, many times about what it was like to hear Shiyum from Rabbi Meir Dan in America. As I said, he passed away in 1928 and he had his Levaya was held, of course, in Poland, and the main Masbid was Rav Meir Shapiro, the famous Rav of Lublin, the Rosh Hashiva of Lublin, the founder of the Dafyomi, spoke about Rav Meir Dan Platsky. Now, Rav Meir Shapiro was interesting himself because he was on one hand a Rosh Hashiva, and the other hand a real Chassid Shiyid. The Rav Meir Dan Platsky, although he was brought up in the Hasidish world, is known primarily for his Svarim, primarily for his Lambdas, and not for so much in terms of his Hasidish background. Rav Meir Shapiro said that when a Rebbe dies, when at the Levaya, that a Rebbe dies, we know that another Rebbe will be chosen. You always can replace a Rebbe one way or another. But when a Gaon dies, then it's a different situation. You need Gaonim to replace him. Me Tain Lanu Tumurasa was Reb Meir Shapiro said, who will give us someone like Reb Meir Shapiro, like Reb Meir Dan Platsky. 
As I mentioned before, the famous farm which he wrote include a sefer on the Yerushalmi and Kachim. The Yerushalmi and Kachim, which was proven conclusively that it was based on the forgery, had fooled certain Rabbanim. Other Rabbanim were not taken in at all. They say about the Ragachavar that he received the this Yerushalmi one day and in the letter he wrote the next morning, he said, I mailed it back at the post office because I realized something is wrong with it and I didn't want to keep it something in my house that I felt something was wrong I didn't want to keep it at all and therefore he sent it back immediately. Other people took longer and, and worked on it to show that it was really a plagiarized version of something else, it was a forgery. Rameir Dan wrote a sefer called Shalosh Sha'alush Lom Yerushalayim about this Yerushalmi of Kachim. He wrote another sefer called Chemdas Yisrael, which is a long extended perush and chidushim on sefer mitzvos. He discusses the different mitzvahs of the Torah, but in a very typical Polisher, uh, pilpalistic style. His sefer, perhaps, that he's most known for is the Klichemda on Chumash. The Klichemda is a sefer on every parsha, but instead of drashos on the parsha, instead of agadic work in the parsha, he deals with halachic issues of every parsha, and in the style that reminiscent of the Sochachavr, reminiscent of a certain type of Polish Shadarach, he has a, a, an interesting pilpul on, on every parsha. A, a number of them, as I said before, were written as correspondence between him and other Gedolim in Poland. I just wondered, I assume that uh, bibliographers will know this better, but I assume that the fact that the Svarim are called Kli Chemda and Chemdas Yisrael, two Svarim have the word Chemda in it, may be referring to the initials, Chemda would be Chidushe Meyerdan, the Chidushim of himself, which he perhaps wanted to hint at in the title. The greatest kavod that you can do to a niftar is to mention some of the chidushim that he said. The amount of Torah, the amount of chidushim that's found in the Klichemda and, and in the Chemdas Yisrael are so wide and so vast on every topic in Shas that I chose to take something from this week's parsha, which is almost typical of a type of approach. A, a student of his had written to him in Parsha's Tazriyah, and he said that according to the Yerushalmi, that we learn the source of Mila from our week's Parsha, from Tazriyah. The Torah says, Ubayom Hashmini Yimal Basar Alasa. So, in the Bavli, we learn the source of Mila because it says, Vayom Avram Baruch commanded Avram. And we learn from here that all fathers are commanded. But according to the Rishalmi, we learn from the Pasuk, Ubayom Hashmini Yimol Basar Alasso in today's Parsha. And the question is obvious. It says Yimol Basar Alasso, he should do it. But who should do it? Why does anybody think the Chiyuv is more on the father than anybody else? The student who suggested the question to Rab Meyerdan wrote that since there's a halacha, that when there's a definite case of Mila, or Lasovadai, then you have a bris on Shabbos. But the Yushalmi learns, below Suffolk. But if there's a Suffolk, if you have to have the bris, then you don't have it on Shabbos. And he points out, but in a Suffolk you would do it on a weekday. 
why would you be allowed to do a Suffolk bris? Isn't the Suffolk bris, on one hand, a Suffolk mitzvah? On the other hand, it's chavala. It's to, to create a wound. Now, why are you in, in general allowed to have a bris? The answer is because it's a mitzvah. But if it's a Suffolk mitzvah, then how are you allowed to do chavala? So he said, you see, that since the Rambam in Hilchus Tshuva, Perek Vav, says that children below the age of 13 somehow are under the dominion of their father, therefore the father would be allowed to do a chavala. So we must say there's a chiv on the father and therefore you can do a Suffolk Mila. Rameir Dan dealt with the question and began to discuss really if you can be mal in the case of, of a Suffolk. And he discussed the idea of there are certain a certain procedure that is done in one fell swoop when you do the Mila you do the the Mila and there are what's called Tzitzim which are not Ma'akev but if you continue doing it you finish that as well but the Rambam says that you do not go back to Tzitzim She'ena Ma'akvim Hamila. Once you did the bris, since this second procedure is not ma'akev, it's not a, it's not doesn't prohibit the mila from being a valid mila. You don't go back. It's known that other rishonim think you do go back for that tzitzim, but you do not do that on Shabbos because it's not necessary. So on Shabbos you don't do it, but during the week, on a regular weekday you would do it. The Argument of Rameir Dan then is that according to the Rambam, you don't do it on the weekday at all because it's chavala. The father is allowed to be Mala's child because it's a mitzvah. But during the week, even during the week, when there's no problem of Chil Shabbos, why shouldn't you go back for Tzitzim Shein Amak And he says it because it must be because of chavala. Then he goes on to discuss really, that there is a problem in learning the source of Mila from Avram. That's before the Torah was given. In general, we know the Rambam in the introduction to Perak Gidhan in his Perish HaMishnayis, the Rambam says, we don't do mitzvahs because of what we were told before Matan Torah. We do mitzvahs after Matan Torah. So how do we know that a father has the malice child? So it must be the so that's how we see the Yushalmi rejected the Limud from Avram Avinu, assumedly because he thought you can't learn from something that came before Matan Torah. But then, of course, the question would be what the student originally asked. How can you learn from here that the father is obligated? So, again, in a type of Polish people, Rameer Dan answered brilliantly. He said, in general, why, how can you be mal on Shabbos? Why don't you say that it's usher to do Milon Shabbos? And of course, we learn from our Pasuk, from our Parsha, Bayom HaShmini, Bayom So he said, because it's a mitzvah to do it. But according to the Shittos, that a guy could do Mila, many people hold that a guy is kasher Mila. It's a whole Gemara that Akum is kasher Mila. 
if that's true, so why should a Jew do the bris? Why wouldn't we tell a non-Jew to, tell, to do the bris? So he said, you see from here that if the guy does it, the father doesn't fulfill the mitzvah. It's true that the child will be Nemo, but the father won't fulfill the mitzvah. That is the only reason why a father is allowed to do the bris on Shabbos. If there had been no mitzvah on the father, then he wouldn't have been allowed to do it on Shabbos. Since it says, Bayam, Since we learned that the eighth day you can do bris mila, it follows there's somebody who's specifically obligated. Obviously, there's a lot more to discuss, the pros and the cons, to say, is this true only if the father does the bris himself, if the father appoints someone else to do it, would it say B'Shabbos? I just thought that it would be appropriate in this week of Parshas Tazriya to, to discuss one of the topics that Reb Meir Dan spoke in Klechemda V'chahein Rabbos. This is a sefer that's chock-filled with all kinds of uh, interesting observations about mitzvahs of, of the parsha. And as it says Yartzeit this week, it was fitting to say something that he learned on Parshas Tazriya. Thank you very much, Rav Tavori. On this note, um, I think we haven't clarified all the issues of Tarat, but perhaps we've given some food for thought. Um, just want to give a quick message of Mazal Tov to my brother-in-law Shmuel Daniel and his wife Barakat, who got married this week, and who are building a house together. And in that vein, we wish them and hope and pray for them that they're able to constantly correct and make better their, their personal, individual spirituality, the spirituality that affects the circle of people in their immediate vicinity, and ultimately build a bait in Amman Israel and have a spirituality that positively affects those surrounding them in the larger sense, in the national sense of all of Am Yisrael. And with that, Shabbat Shalom and Chodesh Tov, and may we all be eating Korban Pesach in two weeks from now, or preparing Korban Pesach two weeks from now, in order to eat it this Pesach in two weeks and two days. Shabbat Shalom.